Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. If you need a Bible, we have some on the sides. Feel free to grab one. You're even outside of the range of the camera, so you're safe. We're going to be jumping back into 2214. Maybe we'll just give a brief little run-up. But we are coming, and we'll certainly hit today, um, the end of Solomon's Proverbs proper. So from 2216, that marks the close. 2217, and what follows to the conclusion of the book of Proverbs, are collections of the wisdom of other people. The section we'll enter into today, and we'll spend some time talking about it, is a section that uh, Solomon has gleaned from others, and he's collated this list of Proverbs, and certainly, and no doubt, edited them. There weren't these kinds of copyright rules and plagiaristic rules back in the ancient world. Plus, if you're King Solomon, you can do whatever you want. But he would, uh, so taking and modifying, so there's still... Holy Spirit inspired, even if the initial origin was pagan. Um, They've been recognized uh, by Solomon, by the Holy Spirit, as true and set forth from us. So you'll notice a little change of tone and some change of themes, and that's going to carry on throughout the end of the book as we go through uh, various other collections. I was glancing at this. We're going to have the words of the wise people, more words of wise people, Solomon's Proverbs copied by Hezekiah's men, uh, we'll have, let's see, Agur's Proverbs, King Lemuel's Proverbs, and then an acrostic poem about a godly life concludes uh, the study of Hebrews. Okay, so as we get into all of that, let's call upon God for his blessing in invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so as we run to a close then of chapter 22 and of the initial Proverbs of Solomon, I'll just highlight very briefly and, yes, a little bit idiosyncratically, verse 12, The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the word of the traitor. This is, we're starting to see some inclusio kind of themes, even though it's a soft inclusio. Um, marking some parallels between the beginning of Proverbs and the end of this section of Proverbs. So, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is to conduct oneself in this life with the knowledge that God is watching, He cares, He's judge. That's how to conduct oneself uh, in this life. And here you have that repeated, that idea repeated, the eyes of the Lord keep watch over. We've seen uh, many Proverbs, especially here in chapter 22, referring to the fact that God sees, and that's the ultimate. So when you're making decisions in life, it's like, well, what's, what's my family going to think? Or what are, you know, if you're a father, what are my children going to think? What's my workplace going to think? What would, what would the church think? What would Pastor Rody think? You know, maybe. Um, but to live life ultimately in, what, in terms of what would God think? 
That's the basic and essential path of wisdom. That's what it means to fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. It fear, um, sh- sure, there's a sense in which that's terror, but it's also awe and reverence and respect and um, more of those uh, tender and gentle emotions as well. Okay, so the eyes of the Lord keep watch. On to 13, the sluggard. Yeah, the lazy will come up with any excuse, including the outrageous. There's a lion outside. Can't go. I can't go to work today. Lightning could hit me. Um, the mouth of the forbidden woman, then, is the new material for today. So 2214. And this also, then, by way of inclusio, harkens back to the earlier chapters. Chapters 1 through 9, where the father to the son warning him about the forbidden woman, the evil woman, this seductress that leads away from God into uh, all manner of foolishness and sin, but ultimately into death and hell. Okay? So we see a recurrence then of this forbidden woman uh, here at the end. Um, the mouth of forbidden women is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. Now, this is an astonishing thing. So what, what is intended here? What is meant by... Uh, the mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pet. So her seductress words, obviously if you were to kiss her mouth, um, but her seductive words beckoning you away from faithfulness to God, um, leading you not only... So what's, what's being done here poetically is the deep pit. Remember the deep pit into which she leads in the earliest chapters is death and hell. So seeing the enticements and uh, seductive nature of her words coming forth from her mouth, leading you to consider the source, which is the pit of hell. And if you follow those words, you're going to follow her into hell. That's the poetic imagery here. Very poignant. And a reminder, an echo of the first full nine chapters of Proverbs. What comes next is shocking, and of course, maybe not so much to us because we are familiar with Paul's argument in the first chapters of Romans, but here we see, even in the Old Testament, a a shocking and, and I think horrifying truth, God punishes sin with sin. So... Look at 14. The mouth of forbidden women is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. So God would, if God, so someone has sinned against God in such a way that has offended and alienated God, God, God can, according to this proverb, punish by causing that person to be seduced and allowing that person to be seduced and fall into more and more grievous sin. So God gives them over. That's the language that uh, Paul uses in Romans. God gives them over to their sinful desires so that what begins as the sin of lust ends up in all manner of unnatural lust and uh, denigrating lust God punishes sin with sin. That's how you want it? Fine. And he lets you go. And that's the same thing here. You want want in your conduct, whatever that may be, to be alienated from me? Fine. Into the mouth, into the uh, seductions of forbidden women you go, your end is the pit. 
So, a punishing of sin with sin. I think we always, like, fear God's wrath, like, well, if I do this thing, he might give me a flat tire on my minivan, or something like that. Um, We think of God's wrath as something um, disconnected, maybe, from the sin, or punitive, or something that we can obviously see as, as maybe a consequence, or we suspect if it's not obvious. But it is a, it is a, the right response to be horrified by the fact that God punishes sin by saying, have more of it, have more of it, have more of it. Um, go ahead. That's, if you want to, if you, that's the way you're going to go, I'll give you up to your own sins. Okay, so that um, obviously then is part and parcel of the fear of the Lord, is fearing that we would offend him and incur punishment, even greater sins being the punishment in view here. Page 15, chapter 22, verse 15, folly, foolishness, is bound up in the heart of a child. I love this because it's so anti-America. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Okay, so we've got a whole bunch of scandalous things to talk about here. Um, By anti-America, I mean America's got this schizophrenic, we can all note this, this schizophrenic relationship to children that if they're in the womb, America seems to want to kill them. Then if they come out of the womb, America seems to want to worship them. So this uh, bizarre, contradictory aspect. And one of the worships is, oh, aren't children so innocent? Well, if you've had them, and it hasn't been too long, you know that that's not the case. You know that the apple doesn't fall too far from the apple tree. And you know that very early on, you can even see things like selfishness and willfulness and a complete neglect of other people, just sort of baked into what it means to be an infant. Again, for parents with young infants or not too far away from it, one of the common refrains is, it's a good thing he made them cute. <laughs> so, obviously, the teaching of original sin or inherited sin sounds to us stodgy and formal. It's not at all. It just sounds that way to our ears. But a very simple way to wrap your mind around this, and the way I often teach it to our young kiddos, and and I've heard others here in our church teach it to young kiddos too. It's great. I don't think that this is necessarily original with me, but it's like, what's the offspring of a platypus? A platypus! And the offspring of a duck, a duck, and so on and so forth. Kind begets kind. So what's the offspring of a sinner? A sinner. That's it. So we shouldn't expect our kids to be born from sinners as suddenly saints. And then how's that narrative go? That eventually they get corrupted into sinners again? It's absurd. It's absurd. But this is the way America tends to think. The way we all kind of tend to think about children is, oh, they're so innocent. Mm. Mm. And here then, one of the ways in which children lack is they're foolish. They're foolish. I don't know if you remember this. I called it the suicidal stage. So my kids went from like nursing and being very, you know, easily contained to starting to crawl, to starting to walk, to at least for a period of time running around looking for any possible way they could harm themselves. What can I crawl into? What can I crawl up? What can I fall off of? 
Uh, and, you know, I know this is against um, the American religion. They're foolish. You have to constantly watch them. Don't touch that. <laughs> Don't eat that. <laughs> All right. So um, Solomon here, again, via the Holy Spirit, tapping into this characteristic of children. And we can see that even as we grow up, some of those same foolish, self-centered, self-harming tendencies abide. And unless there's intervention by the Holy Spirit through the grace of God, they actually grow. So what's a little weed become? A big weed! <laughs> so that's, why, that's why the world is filled with big weeds! They didn't pop up out of nowhere. They didn't come from innocent seeds that suddenly sprung into big weeds. Right? A, little, a little weed seed becomes a big weed, and that's what we see all around us today. Okay, so there has to be an intervention, in fact, a new birth, so that that which was once a weed dies in the baptismal waters, and what is raised up is a new plant altogether, one that's God-pleasing and welcome in God's garden. Okay, so meditating then a little on this first line, folly or foolishness is bound up in the heart of, the, of a child. And then going to the next clause, which I, I know is going to be scandalous, I just, you know, it's the Bible, so I can't really care. The rod of discipline drives it far from him. Is the, does the Bible command corporate punishment? It does. It does. So physical spanking or um, other, other physical means of disciplining children are 100% fair game according to the Lord who made them, according to the Lord to whom they belong. Now, your mileage may vary, but there are some kiddos who are so willful, so stubborn, they won't listen to anything but physicality. There are some kiddos who are so willful and so stubborn that if you spank them, they will sneer at you and say, do it harder. The point here is that as parents, we need to find a way to get through to our children and penetrate the foolishness and get them to understand. Now, that may be a rod or it may be something else. It may be a proverbial rod. So I know that... um, I don't want to, gosh, how can I do this? I can't really make it biographical. As the, as the firstborn, <laughs> when I was growing up, I had siblings. And I could see my parents figuring out which parenting techniques work to deter certain attitudes and behaviors. And I think more broadly, that's obviously in biblical view, is yes, in the extreme, it might be a rod, but finding the mechanism that deters wicked, foolish attitudes and behaviors is the art of parenting, what you need to do. Obviously, then they get a certain age, and if you were to take the proverbial rod into your hand after them, they might snatch it out of your hand and use it on you. So so when they reach that age and that strength, uh, we need to find other ways of parenting. Um, but of course, what is America doing? What is what are all the all the parenting wisdom, all the psychological wisdom, all the programs that have come out um, over the years? There's every so often there's a new fad in parenting. By and large, it's all been opposed to any kind of physical discipline of uh, children, and it's just worked great. I mean, we've we've just seen a, a real uptick in morality and a real uptick in good people. Uh, 
good adults in the world over the past few years, haven't we? Over the past few decades, haven't we? Yeah, no. Um, in fact, is just cruising around a grocery store or uh, cruising around a shopping mall, you see children um, in every age spectrum pretty much being rotten. Yeah. I mean, again, they're just little weeds. So um, the, uh, when weeds beget weeds and weeds parent weeds, the parent weeds just increase the weediness of the little weeds. <laughs> Weed can only do what a weed does. Um, But we as Christians know that God intervenes with us as a father. He flat out forbids, he disciplines, he chastises, he lets his rod fall upon us and all out of fatherly love and goodness. And he, our heavenly father, then becomes the template of earthly fathers, earthly parents parenting their children. Okay, so then that's ultimately what's in view with how should we discipline our children after the way that God disciplines us. Um, we Lutherans would even, to a degree, specify that as law and gospel. So there's a kind of harshness or a kind of penalty that's meant to bring about repentance. It's meant to bring about an acknowledgement of sin. And fruits worthy of repentance. But of course, with that also comes the absolution, forgiveness and love and assurance that you remain a member of the family, just as God does for us. So that can help in a general sort of way um, as we're thinking through parenting. How would God, how has God, how does God parent as a heavenly father? Let me emulate that as an earthly father. Okay, so um, obviously I'm just looking around the room. There's parents with a lot more experience than me. I'm just leaning on God's word and trying to uh, explicate that word. Um, anything else you want to add or, uh, or challenge in regard to this proverb or any that we've covered today so far? Fair, fair game. I think it's interesting, Pastor, that it isn't just the Bible you find this wisdom in. Correct. You know, uh, uh, the Greeks had this idea that practical wisdom guided you to virtue, but they also recognized that children have no practical wisdom. And so you need to have somebody that already has practical wisdom guiding the, ch- the child to virtue, right? Because by nature, it, Augustine was following the Greeks. He said this, it's like animal t- t- taming. Each of us has a wild animal living inside of us. And if you don't tame the wild animal, it just stays wild. In fact, it, maybe it goes feral, mm-hmm. right? And I think we have a lot of those running around in our <laughs> society today. Right. Feral adults. Feral I mean, adults. Where do you get gangs from? Yeah, right. That are, that are generally filled with people that are just utterly incorrigible at this point. Right, right. It's because there was nobody ever guiding them to be more temperate, to be just, to be, you know. I more, like that. You know. It's putting, a phrase in, it's putting a phrase in my mind that I might put in my inner monologue, not really speak out loud, but, you know, you should have been spanked more as a child. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's, you know, this is, this is one way to, to, to control people. Is, you know, don't just, you don't just get everything you want, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, which is what. Most children are. Uh, it, it, Freudian uh, psychology has largely been, uh, you know, discredited. But 
children are sometimes described were, were sometimes described as walking ids. Oh, you know, yeah, the id sure. knows no right. time, space, or contradiction. Right. You know, I want what I want, and I want it now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and with that, it, I, yeah, that's funny, the walking id. With that, what's also humorous is, um, so talking about foolishness and sin, little kids, like if, you, like if you kind of contradict them or tell them no, and they're feeling their oats, they'll actually attack you. I mean, it's so hilarious. Like they stand a chance, there is a firm belief that they will actually, like, punish you, <laughs> conquer you with their fists. It's, I mean, it's adorable. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's just great. It's the way little kids are, you know. There's that raw kind of, like, not even rational thought of, uh, I'm probably not going to win this one. But, you know. Gonna, you're gonna you're gonna end you're gonna end up being picked up by the back of the shirt and carried to your bed and sat in your bed. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's good, um, and that actually is where we're going. Next is this realization that the natural law is a, is basically synonymous with the design of creation. So. Properly speaking, God makes creation, and what we call the natural law is part and parcel of that. It is one and the same as that. Now, this, this is available, the revelation of the order of creation, the revelation of natural law, is available to everyone. It's ultimately why God will tell the nations... Say the Jews had the law, the Ten Commandments, but even without the law, you stand condemned as a sinner because you have the natural law and you have the order of creation and you have your your conscience in harmony with these things, excusing or accusing you. Okay, so the church fathers would talk about these as the two books of Revelation. The first book of Revelation is creation itself. That if you're, a, if you're just a student of creation, you will know that there's a God and you will know right and wrong. And you'll know that you've fallen short of that. The second book, the Bible then, is this. So when we have the biblical revelation and we see a similar revelation in creation such that the pagans know the same thing the Bible teaches, in terms of, especially in terms of ethics and morals, we shouldn't be surprised in the least. The same author of both books is the Lord. So we can take much of, and this is where we, we can have a tendency to be too biblicistic. Well, where is that in the Bible? It doesn't need to be in the Bible. It needs to be true. Now, the Bible can clarify that for us, but it's biblicistic. I mean, what verse in the Bible tells you not to sit out in the sun without sunscreen for four hours? You don't need a Bible verse to know that that's not a good idea. So behavioral, moral, ethical truths are present and written within creation. And so when pagans acknowledge those, there's nothing at all wrong with Christians saying, hey, we've come to the same conclusion, or look at that, the Bible says the same exact thing as you've observed. So thank you for that. That's where we're going, because in the next section, um, where we hit verse 17, the words of the wise... There's a, it's, it, there's a high likelihood that what Solomon has done is taken pagan wisdom and uh, collated and edited it so that it can be put within the scriptures. 
So it would be an example of natural revelation becoming part and parcel of the biblical revelation. So thank you for that. Yes, sir. Yeah, hi, Pastor. Um, I, I heard an interesting expression this week that it might apply to verse 14. Yeah, please. That we, we were discussing. And it's an interesting thing. It said, uh, keep in Scripture to keep away from sin. Or if you keep in sin or keep, stay in sin, it'll keep you away from Scripture. Mm, interesting. Yeah, good. Good. It's just expressive of that mutual exclusivity or the binary nature of the world. It's light and dark. It's what's in accord with God's word and what isn't. Please. I was just going to make a comment about um, verse 15, about the rod of discipline. It reminded me of Psalm 23, the shepherd's Mm -hmm. rod and staff are a comfort. They're Mm -hmm. a comfort and Mm -hmm. how... None of us like discipline. You know, we don't like being in it, going through it. But if we learn from it, righteousness comes from it. Mm -hmm. And so that's a good thing. And there is a comfort in knowing that God loves us so much that he was willing to discipline us and bring us into line with him. Exactly. So this is the odd thing, but absolutely true, is discipline is proof of love. So this is the way the scriptures work, that if you're under discipline, you shouldn't think that God's had it with you. If you're God's child, you go under discipline because he loves you. Not because he's mean, but because he wants more for you than you want for you. And because he's a good... So there's beautiful teaching in scripture. It's so comforting that if you're being afflicted by God, it's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you. And every last son of the father is afflicted. Every last son of the father is disciplined and chastised unto our good. So it's, it, it's kind of akin to when Jesus talks about all the signs of the end of the world. And then he says, so get really depressed and go on a shopping spree or get really depressed and go find a bottle of bourbon. No, he says, lift up your heads. Your redemption is coming. Well, the whole world is cowering and oh, this is terrible. And we can say, this is great. The Lord's coming and he's going to be here any minute. And by way of parallel, the same thing is true when we're undergoing discipline from the Lord. As we can say, this, isn't, this is proof that he loves me. This is proof that he's still trying to correct me. <laughs> this is proof that he hasn't given up. And it's even true on the earthly spectrum, isn't it? So the kids we were talking about, they didn't have a father in their lives. Or if they did, the father didn't love them enough to make himself their enemy. And in fact, that's some of what, this is the disease of Orange County, is you've got, and I'm speaking very generally here, you've got the disease of parents who want to be best friends with their kids. So they'll never impose any discipline because they want to just have a friendly relationship. So I don't love you enough to do the hard work of telling you no. I don't love you enough to have you resent me for your good. So it's a selfishness and it's a lack of love. And ultimately it's pretty uh, gross because the parent just wants to be loved instead of actually doing the vocation of loving, which includes discipline. Okay, I see you're trying to no, get a comment. No, I'm just tagging on to dis- discipline, too. Yeah. It's, and I think people get too bogged down on the rod of discipline. Sure. And if you focus on the discipline as being the main word, yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes it could be the rod, but it, there's lots of different options. Mm-hmm. But discipline has become a dirty word mm-hmm. instead of something we hold up to a higher standard. And it's interesting to think, like, for your kids – 
you know, if you're concerned about your health, their health, you're not going to let them eat all the sugar they want. You're not going to let them, you know, you're going to make sure they get exercise. Just how we talked about the athletes in previous Proverbs. And, but for discipline, for character, um, you don't have that same regard. And I, I, I tell, I tell people, too, that ask me about kids, it's like when you have a little puppy that you know it's going to grow up to be 100 pounds, if you let it jump on you, if it's a little puppy, oh, it's so cute, it's no big deal. Well, when it's 100 pounds, it's going to be knocking you over. So you Absolutely. need to discipline it when it's little. Absolutely. And the same thing for a three-year-old. Sometimes it's really cute what they're doing, and it's adorable. But when they're 13, is that going to be adorable? Excellent point. No. It, Excellent it's, point. And it takes effort and sometimes it's not fun and sometimes you have to say no just one more time Mm -hmm. you have to hold out just one second longer than the kid that's all you got to (laughs) do but it's hard it's easier to give in absolutely and it's hard and i mean i didn't always do it right for sure absolutely but um but i think you know we need to encourage each other in discipline because it's it's hard and the kids are suffering for it Absolutely. Because it's, it's, discipline is the opposite of selfishness, hmm? either from the kids or from the parents. Wonderfully said. It's not wanting to bother. Wonderfully said. Exactly right. The, then we can recognize that if discipline is good, if exercising authority is good, then by nature our flesh doesn't want to do it. Because the sinful nature is not going to want to discipline or if you are put by God in a position of authority, you are not going to want to exercise that authority. Right. Right. Yes, sir. Yeah, just tagging on to the parental thing. When I was first starting out being a parent, I'd ask a lot of people, like, you know, what are your words of wisdom? And one of the most succinct ones came from my uncle, and he says, you can't always be popular. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's so true. It's so true. And, th- and that scales all the way up. Anyone who's going to be truly loving in, an, in a position of authority has to be able to not be loved, has to be able to not be popular. Because that's the loving thing to do, is to tell people, no, that's not the right thing, right? So it's a great lesson for parenting and anyone who's seated in a position of authority. I used to think of myself as a real mean mother. Uh-huh. I told my kids I'm a mean mother, but yes. I love you, I love you. <laughs> when I, I love it. I love it. That's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it's counterintuitive. You know, the world says uh, love is just doting on kids and giving them whatever they want. That's not really love. That used to be called spoiling your children, making them rotten. (laughs) Yes, sir. Pastor, I wanted to tie this in, or maybe you can tie it in, with, you know, there's that Levitical commandment that I've got this child that's incorrigible and that is... It, you know, that I, I, he doesn't listen to me and so on. Let's stone him to death. Yeah. Right? There's that, that passage. And I, I you know, I've, I've ha- had arguments with people about it. Look how evil God is. Mm-hmm. But it, it strikes me that that commandment was not given for children. That they should, you know, listen to your parents or you're going to get stoned to death. That it was really given for parents to see... That whether it's by stoning or by them descending into drunkenness or whatever, lawlessness, if you don't take care of your children when they're young, that's what's waiting. Mm-hmm. What's waiting down the road for them is death. And of course, this is also enshrined in the fourth commandment itself, that your days may be long, honor your father and mother. 
Uh, so it seems like this whole idea that right discipline is bad, what we're doing is keeping the children from dying. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there's endless wisdom in that passage that the world is scandalized by. Um, maybe, maybe to draw out one point that you touched on and to highlight it would be imagine how serious you take your job as a parent if your failure means you get to pick up the stones and execute the capital punishment. It's not the state's problem. Strangers don't get to do it. This is how seriously you have to take your role that if you botch this to where the child is a wicked weed and incorrigible and a drain on society, guess who gets to pick up the stone and throw it? I, I don't think that this was a command, or, or a, a command. I mean, this is part of Israel's civil law. It's not part of the moral law. It reflects moral law, of course. But I don't think that this is something that happened terribly frequently because it's a heck of a deterrent to parents. And how many times do you think that would have to happen in a generation before kids were like, oh my gosh. I mean, it could probably happen once and everybody would be like, whoa, they take this commandment seriously? Okay, I'm in line. <laughs> Maybe one more um, point to glean from that. It's very contrary to the modern West, and that's why we need to take it in. You will notice that the Bible does not have, in its, uh, it, it, let's, just, let's just narrow it so I can be more specific. In the civil laws that govern the nation state of ancient Israel that God sets forth, especially in a book like Deuteronomy, what you don't see is punishments like five years in jail, 20 years in jail, life in jail. Now, there's a lot of reason why you don't see that. And then what do we call them? Not, not jails or prisons. I should be using the language of prison, maybe. But, um, but what do we call them? Correctional facilities. What percentage of people are being corrected there versus further corrupted there? Much evil comes from what we think of as a kind of mercy. What you'll find in this, and this just, I just set this forth for your consideration. Because what you find in the civil law instituted by God is a lot more, that's the death penalty. That's the death penalty. That's the death penalty. That's the death penalty. Now we have virtually no death penalty and virtually nobody afraid of doing anything. And even if you do something, you're going to sit on, there's appeals and you're going to sit on quote unquote death row for 40 years and live a happy life on taxpayer funded dollars. Um, so there's all kinds of abuses of society and the system that that quote unquote mercy or leniency or hope to correct. God just says, no, society shouldn't have to bear that. Um, th there's even a flip side of this. Imagine a man who's, maybe he's in his early 20s, and he's going the wrong way, and he kills someone, he murders someone, and he's sentenced to life in prison. Now, maybe if he's got the right skin color in this day and age, he'll be let out in a year, but let's assume that he's going to actually serve that life sentence. He comes to recognize over the course of the trial the severity and reality of what he's done, and he comes to repent of it, maybe even comes to genuine saving faith in Christ, and he realizes this is a horrific thing that I've done. Is it not cruel and unusual to keep that human being in a cage for 60 or 70 years? 
That would be the argument of mercy and leniency. And again, we don't see it that way because we don't look at life the way God looks at life. Hey, everybody's got to die. Would you rather die and be with me in heaven? Or would you rather spend 70 or 80 years sitting in a cell like an animal? So there's a bunch of unrighteousness and immorality in our quote-unquote justice system and in the way we punish people. We're scandalized when we see God saying death penalty, death penalty, death penalty, death penalty. But that is a mercy to society at large and frequently a mercy to the individual. Because it's dying in, in, in repentance and going to heaven Maybe even, let me just be like, all the more, uh, let me impose this on you. Dying and going to hell might be preferable than dying and spending 80 years or 70 years rotting in a jail cell and then going to hell. There's a kind of cruelty and unusualness in caging a human being made in the image of God for endless decades that isn't present in a quick capital punishment. It's one of the strange ways in which God views life and death and God views the world that couldn't be more polar opposite than the way we view life and death, we being Americans collectively, the way we view life and death and the way we view punishment and discipline. I mean, I would rather, I mean, if I fell from the faith and fell into you know, some grave capital sin like murder, I know what the Bible says. God says the one who sheds the blood of a man, his blood shall be said, or his, sorry, his blood shall be shed. That is a commandment of God. It's foundational. And I would simply say, that's, I recognize now what I've done, and that's the penalty for what I've done. That is the temporal consequence of what I've done. But not only, not only would I prefer that because it's right, I would actually even prefer that because it's in the best interest of society and myself. I don't want to rot for 70 years, and I don't want society to have to fund my rotting. Okay, I know that's going to be controversial. Things to consider, but it is why God's word reads so differently than our laws, and why we're so easily scandalized by, oh, the incorrigible son gets stoned by his parents. (gasps) How ghastly and monstrous is God. God would say, I beg your pardon, your system is ghastly and monstrous. Your system is unjust. Your system is poisonous to the individual and society. But I'll let him make that case on the last day. I should point out also the incorrigible son passage. It does go into a little bit more detail about how he's incorrigible, like being a drunkard or a... You know, you don't have any sons, so I'm not worried about your studying this passage. In yeah, depth. yeah, well, I mean, the point is, it's not because he he, he wouldn't get off of PlayStation. Yes, right, of course, right, right, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. The, yeah. the parents have have to put up a little bit more. Like he has to do something more serious. Absolutely, than, you know, not eating his broccoli. Yeah, this is yeah. extreme disruptiveness, right. extreme impenitence, and hardness. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, there's a hand uh, all the way up front here. This this direction. Right here. Mm-hmm. Um, one second. We've got to get you the microphone just so that the, the people in the back can hear. Yeah. Loving discipline is patience because um, everybody wants a quick fix. Everybody wants this to go away. 
It's not going to be okay. Consideration the child mm-hmm. and what kind of child. Absolutely. You know, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> you become a parent and you don't know anything about it, you know, but you do, you do your best. Mm-hmm. All tend to think it's going to be okay. Yes. Exactly. That's a great point. That is a great point. Yeah. The nature, the nature of discipline <laughs> is loving consistency, right? And in that discipline. And you can see, I mean, again, I'm not saying this from a position of self-righteousness. Everyone who's been a parent has made mistakes in parenting. Um, but you, you can see where inconsistency leads to a kiddo that does, like, why can't, it's like almost, um, so the most, one of the most addictive potentialities, this is why social media works the way it does, is what they engineered into casinos so that you only win some of the time. So the machine is effectively telling you, no, 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 okay. No, 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 no. And that is extremely addictive to get you to keep pressing the button, to keep pushing and testing to get the one okay. It's why um, social media is so addictive, too. Because um, you're pumping for those, you know, you're commenting and responding for the little likes. So it's like, no, 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 that didn't hit. Oh, that one hit. Oh, that one's doing numbers, you know. And you get all this uh, flood. And it's why you, keep, um, why you keep pushing into social media. Look at all the likes and this kind of thing. Um, when you parent in a way that is inconsistent, that's exactly what you do. Is you say, no, 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 yes. No, 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 yes. And it is addictive for the kid to continue to push up against that then. So the consistency is what breaks that, where you say, no, here's a line in the sand. It's the same yesterday. It's the same today, and it'll be the same tomorrow. And here's the consequence, and here's what it is. And yeah, you have to vigilantly keep that. Otherwise, you end up with a kid who then, um, ultimately, when this is done extremely poorly, you have a kid who's confused. He doesn't even know or she doesn't even know what the real boundaries are. And so when mom says, like, hey, stop that or else, there's like a 50-50% chance that or else is going to transpire. And there's like a 10% chance that um, she really, really means it. So the kids are like calculating along the, you know, without consciously calculating. They're like, I bet I can get away with this. And they really don't know where the hard and fast boundaries are. So it's a great point you bring up that a lot. And isn't the law the same way? I mean, the law in our country functions as a macrocosm of that. It's like, um, again, our legal system has no deterrence. So people just keep, I mean, very little deterrent. And so people just keep committing crimes. If the legal system itself was strict, uh, stern and consistent, that's when you see crimes decrease because the deterrent is in place. And I know is if I do X, I'm going to get Y. That's true to a 95th percent chance. I'm not going to do X. But if you go, I'll probably get away with it. It's 10% chance I'll get caught. And if I do get caught, there's a, another 50% chance that anything will happen. You start criminals start to calculate. You know, weeds grow up and just still are weeds, and they calculate. So, yeah, all discipline is love, and and love is has to be um, hard sometimes, and love has to be consistent always. Okay, anything else on this one? Okay, so then let's close it out with sixteen. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth, or gives to the rich 
will only come to poverty. Okay, we can see how this might appear at times to be true temporally and false temporally. But the ultimate principle to take away is that the Lord sees, and in the end, the scales will balance. Even if that means you get away with it your whole life, you oppress the poor to increase your own wealth, or you um, rob from the poor to give to the rich your whole life, uh, in the end, standing before God, you're going to find yourself impoverished. You're going to find yourself having nothing. Because you can't, uh, you came into this world with nothing, you're going to leave this world with nothing. You, the richest man who's ever lived, whomever that may be, is going to stand before God the same as you or me or any beggar. You know, God's not like, ooh, ooh, well, you are a billionaire. Let's, uh, let's roll out the special treatment. I mean, if anything, it's, ah, I see how much you had. To whom much is given, much is required. So, again, uh, very much in the background is the idea that God cares, and God cares about the poor and the downtrodden. Um, we can't let people who abuse that category of poverty uh, spoil the whole lot. There are still people who are poor and worthy of compassion, and um, God cares very much about them, and cares very much about when they're oppressed. Of course, our whole system right now is just um, is basically giving to the rich. Our whole system is a disaster. Um, so the uh, it's yeah it's it's lined up so that the rich get, it's the age old saying the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Okay, so that's how it ends then um, with a eye toward um, the poor and God's concern for them. So maybe uh, maybe that's it for today because the next what happens in seventeen. Um, and I'll just have you glimpse at this. I'll get into it in full next week, and we'll talk a little bit more about the relationship of natural revelation, natural law and creation, and then the revelation of the Holy Spirit written in Scripture. But if you just glimpse at the study note in your Bible for chapter 22, 17 through chapter 23, 14, that's the next section we're covering, you'll read, Since the wisdom of... I have no... Amenope, no. <laughs> Amenope, I think, is what it is. If you know how to pronounce it better than that, let me know. The wisdom of Amenope was discovered in Egypt in 1922. Scholars have noted a number of parallels between Amenope's sayings and these verses of Proverbs. More recently, it has become clear that Amenope's work was written at least a century before Solomon lived. This would imply that Solomon borrowed from the Egyptian rather than the other way around. Okay, so that's, it's very insightful that you can't, you know, when you're listening to a podcast or you're listening to somebody talk on YouTube and they're a pagan, you don't have to say, well, they're a pagan, so they have no wisdom that accords with God here. They're speaking truth that is revealed in the natural law and the design and order of creation, then they're saying something that is every bit as good as what's in the Bible. And that would be the take-home point. So let's get into that next week. The Lord be with you.